This is Welcome Home Radio from the Fresno Association of Realtors on 940 KYNO. Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. This, this hour is brought to you by the Fresno Association of Realtors, and we have a goal, and that is to provide our listeners with some really, really good real estate information so you can make informed decisions. And speaking of the Fresno Association of Realtors, we have our Government Affairs Director here today, Kim Huckabee. Good morning. Good morning, Don. All right, and we also have Greg Terzakis, who is the Senior Vice President of the California Apartment Association. Good morning. Good morning, Don. Good to be here. Yeah, you've been on before, so I notice you're not nervous this time. Uh, You weren't nervous last time either. I don't think Greg ever gets nervous. (laughs) All right. So tell us, what does the California Apartment Association do? Well, Don, we're a membership organization that represents the owners and managers of rental property throughout California. We are the largest organization of its type in the United States. And with our members, we represent about 2 million units throughout the state. And they range, Don, from a mom and pop, as we call them lovingly, that may have one rental apartment or one rental house to some of the largest publicly traded real estate trusts in the country. How big is big? That, like some of these big pu- um, publicly We're, traded yeah, trusts. Yeah, they, they may have a couple hundred thousand units with us. Wow. I've, okay. So have you seen your membership grow, you know, in this crazy market? I mean, are you seeing more, uh, you know, investments in rental properties and more more folks joining your organization? Yeah, that's a great question, Kim. I don't know if it's more people investing. I think it's more people understanding what a complex regulatory environment we live in. And with all of the different uh, eviction moratoria and things of that nature, there was a lot of confusion. And Mm -hmm. so by joining CAA, people realized it was an investment, not an expense. And so by becoming a member, they were able to get educated on the law so they knew how to comply with them. And yeah, I mean, paradoxically, one would think with, you know, the greatest economic crisis probably since the Great Depression, I mean, even more so than 08, because this seems to not have a terminus. We're still, now we're on the Omicron virus. Um, we found that people have, have turned to us for help, and it's been, you know, good for CAA, but I think more importantly, it's been good for the members and the tenants that they provide housing for. Great answer. I have a good story here. When I first got my first rental home, uh, boy, it was over 40 years ago, I was in partners with my uncle. And he said, hey, good news, I got the place rented out. I said, all right, great, let me see the contracts. Keep in mind, I was right, right out of college. I knew that you had to do f- debt-to-income formulas. Oh, yeah. and <clears throat> he, he held up a yellow piece of uh, paper and said, here it is, that's the application and the uh, contract. I said, you can't do that, you have to do this and that. He goes, oh no, 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 I go by my gut feel. Now, that tenant stayed with us for over 25 years. It was a great relationship and probably never had to refer to that yellow piece of paper, that contract once. It was, it was the way things used to be. 
but it's not that way so much anymore. Our leases, our standard leases now run about 12 to 14 pages. Wow. Yeah. And see, uh, none of that was needed back then. <laughs> yeah. And you know, Don, I think part of it too is um, one with AB 1482 passing, which I think we might touch on later, which essentially provides what we call just cause eviction protections. So if a tenant has been, and this is statewide, there are some local uh, jurisdictions who have made tweaks to it. But if a tenant has been there more than a year, the owner or manager needs a reason other than we don't want to continue renting to you to keep renting to them. And so what we've found is, to your point in your story with your uncle, is screening has become incredibly important for our members to ensure that the income they state they make, they make, that they're going to be good tenants. You got really lucky that you had a tenant for 25 years. It could have gone south in a hurry. And, you know, 40 years ago, the protections for tenants didn't exist as they do today. So for our members, making certain that they're getting the right tenant in the unit is incredibly important because this is like a long-term relationship. Yeah. So Greg, like for our listeners, you know, just touch on that like a little bit. So, you know, reasons, you know, if the tenant's been there a year or more, you would essentially basically need to like sell the property uh, to the be able out. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's not a whole lot of other outs. No, there aren't. And, you know, I think part of it is uh, the state legislature wanting some sort of stability for renters. And we understand that. But I think mm-hmm. the thing that people often forget is, is that an empty rental unit is an expense. Mm-hmm. We want our members want our units leased up. They want tenants. Well, you and your mom and pops, right? I mean, they can't afford to pay the mortgage, you know, on the property without getting the rent. And that's sometimes I think what, you know. No, Kim, I think that's a great point. And this is something else that's kind of been highlighted by the the pandemic is for large corporations, Don, you asked earlier about like our larger members. If you have 5% of the people who can't pay rent and they're going through the emergency rental assistance program in the state, if you have 10,000 units, I mean, that's not an insignificant amount of units, but it's 5%. If you're a mom and pop and you have one house that you're renting and that one tenant can't pay, 100% of your money isn't coming in. Mm -hmm. But the expenses, mortgage, insurance, maintenance, those type of things, they still have to pay for those. Compliance, right? Compliance. They still have to pay for all of those. So it's been a real challenge for our smaller members. Um, And maybe we could touch on later the ERAP program here in Fresno and how we're trying to get money out from the city. Um, through the, the federal government funding to ensure that our uh, members and, and even those who aren't, but all landlords and managers that are eligible to get money to pay rent for tenants who are back due and in arrears, get that money. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to just cause. Let's further define that, if you don't mind. And of course, this came up, just cause used to be, um, I hate to say this and insult uh, so don't. It, the, the legislature. <laughs> but it, it used to be common sense. You know, if somebody didn't appreciate that home. I, I had a client one time that said, this home is uninhabitable. I said, what do you mean? It's got an evaporative cooler, not an air conditioner. You can't. It's uninhabitable. You can't live in here. Of course, my common sense said, well, the home's 55 years old. It's been, people have been living in it for 55 years. Um, so I think it is habitable. 
And of course, the rent was based on the amenities of the home when, when they started. Um, but it, it, so they didn't appreciate the home. And I said, you can give your 30 day notice at any time. But that that's a little harder now. I, I think the landlord has to be careful mm-hmm. on how you end a rental agreement. Yeah, and you know, Don, I think some of that was unfortunately a very, very small group of bad actors in the rental housing space created issues with tenants and were doing things that were illegal and also unethical. So the legislature decided they needed to act. Uh, Again, it's a small percentage, but it was something that I think, again, that the legislature, and it was signed by Governor Newsom, decided it was a, a prudent measure to do. And this also relates to the rent caps for certain properties. That's also part of 1482. It was something that ultimately CAA was neutral on. We understood the reasoning why, but I think our biggest concern is that when you start to get down that path of rent caps and rent control, it's been proven not to work. And we can touch on that later as well. So our biggest concern, and it has been in the six years I've been with CAA and it predated my arrival, was if we don't build enough supply, and if we don't build enough supply and and affordable and low income and tax credit and also market rate apartments, we're not going to have enough places for people to live. Mm -hmm. And the more impediments we put up, both financial and regulatory, the harder that's becoming. And so our biggest concern is how do we build as much as we can, as quickly as we can, to get people who need to be housed, housed. Yeah. Yeah, we can't regulate our way out of this, I think is what Greg is saying. Say that again. That's good. We cannot regulate our way out of this. People are not going to have places to live. There's no legislation that we can pass. We have to build everything that Greg just said. We need incentive uh, versus the sticks. Yeah. And one incentive is let the free market work. One thing I've learned about America, if there's a demand, the supply will follow unless it's regulated then it may not. And, you know, Don, to that point, I think what we've seen in the last 20 years in California is really two things. One, you've seen um, what we call NIMBYs, which I'm certain your audience will know, but, you know, not in my backyard. People who recognize there's a housing crisis and want more apartments built, but not within 100 miles of where they happen to live. So you've got people that have used CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, as a way to slow down the process of development by suing in court, by saying that it violates some provision of the Environmental Quality Act, which makes it harder for developers to build and more expensive. And I think the other thing has been uh, a real lack of effort at the federal and state level to build more, to incentivize more building, particularly in the affordable and low-income space. And Everyone owns that. That is not a partisan issue, in our opinion. It's not a Republican or a Democrat. It's been you know, 25 years of benign neglect and a lack of action. And what we're hoping for in the upcoming legislative session and, and our team at the, in our Sacramento uh, office that works in the state capitol, we're already working with legislators trying to find ways to get more supply bills in the hopper for the governor to sign to streamline some of these processes to incentivize building. So we can build our way out of this, like Kim said. But the issue is it's going to take a few years. You know, it, it's it, you can't just build a house overnight or an apartment complex overnight. 
and taking that into account, that's why we need to act now. Mm-hmm. With that, we do have to go to our first commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ES. Oh, nope, not ESPN anymore, KYNO. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino uh, and also Kim Huckabee of the Fresno Association of Realtors and Greg Terzakis of the California Apartment Association here with us today. And we're talking rentals, being a landlord, we're uh, all kinds of stuff. Earlier in the first segment, you mentioned E-Rap. Now, is that some new song? No, actually, it's not. Um, you're definitely aging yourself there, but I'm going to let that one go. Uh, ERAP is an acronym for the Emergency Rental Assistance Program. And after COVID hit, because so many people were out of work, um, the government, the federal government and the state government decided that they needed to step in and provide uh, financial assistance for people who were affected by COVID-19. So the Emergency Rental Assistance Program in the city of Fresno is administered by the city, but the money comes from both the state and the federal government. It's a process where the owner or manager of the property needs to apply as well as the tenant, and they need to state that they've been affected by COVID. And once that's done and any documentation that's required is provided, the state will provide money to pay the arrears for the tenant since the beginning of COVID. And that's up to 100% now, right? That, yeah, that's correct. Um, it is for people who are making 80% or lower of the area median income. Um, but what we've seen now, which is really interesting yesterday, is California said, okay, there are certain states, mostly in the in, in like the, the mountain states like Montana, Wyoming, uh, that got allocations that don't have a lot of rental properties that have a lot of money left over. And so California said, since they're not using it, can we have it? Because obviously, California rental prices have been high already. Um, Fresno's has been exacerbated by the pandemic, by people moving here from high rent areas in California and working from home. So we've been working with the city of Fresno for the last over a year to ensure that our members are aware of ERAP. We also reached out to community-based organizations, Don, that are working with the tenants to help them fill out the application and get the the application into the city so that their debt can be forgiven through the ERAP funds and that our landlords and managers can be made whole so they can continue to provide housing, pay their mortgage, pay their insurance, pay property taxes and things of that nature. But it takes both the tenant and the landlord to cooperate. Yeah, it's a collaborative process. Mm -hmm. And it's something, you know, I think really that kind of harkens back to CEA's position on how to work with a tenant. It's to communicate. And, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people, they hadn't done very much of it prior to COVID. It was, you know, every year you have to sign a new lease, but it isn't like checking in with them. How are things going at the property? Going out two or three times a year to check on smoke detectors, change air filters, things of that nature. Make certain there are no maintenance requests that they're not asking for because they don't want to be an inconvenience. So it really comes down to communication. And one of the, I, I would like to think the good things that have, that's come out of the pandemic is that we we have seen our our owners and our managers collaborating and working more effectively with tenants. But the one challenge has been, 
And this is where the community-based organizations have been incredibly helpful. And I'd like to give a, a particular shout out to the Fresno Center, um, who we've been working with closely, is when the tenants come in, they have a third party there that works as a tenant advocate that's able to say, yeah, this is legitimate. There's no catch here. You know, by signing this paperwork, you're not risking your tenancy. This is money that's there to help you. So it's kind of a third party validator rather than just the landlord saying, hey, can you do this for me? By going into a CBO and having them help them fill out the application, they feel more at ease that what they're getting is what they're told they're getting. And that's great. I didn't realize that they actually had, a, you know, these tenant advocates like that, because I think that that has been some of the challenge. It's, it is a complicated program. Um, well, the original application was, I think, 36 right. pages. And over the last several months, we've been working with the legislature mm-hmm. to pare that down. But yeah, it, it was intimidating for someone who doesn't know um, how the process works and to see a 36-page ap- application and what they're asking for. Right. Or if you speak, you know, and if English isn't your primary language, Correct. there's all kinds of barriers like that. So I think that is awesome. And I do think that the, you know... Our association has also been working with the city and um, they've done a really great job from where it started um, to get it to be a less complicated process and finally start getting, you know, the money to the people that need it. Right. Yeah. I'll give the city a lot of credit. I've been working with the administration through, you know, CAA. They've been working incredibly hard. The the demand was off the charts at the beginning um, and they're still working on staffing up. Uh, to get these applications processed. It's taking time, but I will tell you that talking to my colleagues throughout the state, uh, Fresno City and County are among the forefront of those getting them processed quickly. There are some other municipalities and counties and cities I don't refer to that are really behind. So we're encouraged that even though it is taking longer than I think anyone would like, we're doing the best with what what we've got. Do they have to prove COVID? Is that part of the... It's a certification. Yeah, they have to attest that they've been affected. Um, So it it isn't, you know, they don't have to have a doctor's note. They don't have to have any sort of information, but it has to be essentially in in the same way that when we sign our 1040 returns, we're attesting that what we're saying is true. It's the same thing. Okay. Well, thank you. So is there still a lot of money left in the ERAP program? Yes. There is um, less than there was, which is good because that means money is going out the door. But again, like I referenced, I think California is trying to find other pots of money that are available to ensure that everyone who can qualify for this program benefits from it. And interesting, I I just learned this this morning. I was just refreshing myself on on the program that so folks can apply all the way up until tw- like 2025 or until all those funds are depleted. So as long as we keep getting money in, if it's coming from other places, whatever, then they can, it's a long, I guess, long-standing program. Yeah, you know, part of it is that some of the ways in which these laws have been written have been piecemeal only because no one understood how profound the effect COVID would be on our uh economy and on our society. So for example, there were, you know, for a long time, California had an eviction moratorium statewide. The city of Fresno still does, but we went through the state of California, three different laws Mm -hmm. that had to be extended because, you know, if you remember correctly, at the beginning of this, Governor Newsom was saying, we need two weeks to bend the curve. Well, that was 20 months ago, 21 months ago. So I don't think anyone at the beginning knew 
it was going to be as long as it was and as profound as it was. So some of these provisions do allow for that, but a lot of it's dependent upon funding. A lot of it's dependent upon what laws are passed, both at the federal and the state level, to ensure that these programs continue to exist. Mm -hmm. And really, the, so ERAP, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, is truly, it, it's almost in response to the eviction moratoria and you know things like that, right? I mean, it's answering some of the problems that have risen you know, from our own ordinances and legislation. Yeah. I mean, again, Kim, I think the concern was if you're going to have an eviction moratorium and owners have tenants who can't be evicted, which is, which to some degree from a, you know, just a purely human point of view makes sense, Absolutely. particularly when, you know, the economy was as bad as it was and there was, you know, widespread panic. I think things are getting a little better now, although it seems like every time, we get a little content and think that we're getting through it. There's another variant that emerges. Um, we'll be, it'll be interesting to see what Omicron does and if it can outcompete Delta. But I think it was an understanding that the overwhelming majority of rental housing providers in California, and that's really all I can speak to, are mom and pops. Mm -hmm. You know, if you take a look at our membership profile, Don, over 60% of our members own less than 10 units. And I would say probably of those, that's how we break it out mm -hmm. in Salesforce, most of those own less than five. So this was a response to the idea that if people can't pay rent and the owners can't replace those tenants with people who can pay rent, and those owners still have expenses like mortgage, property taxes, all the ones I've referenced earlier, someone needs to pay for this. And, and to since, stabilize the situation. Precisely. It, it was stabilizing the situation. Um, this is particularly true in the Valley, because most of our jobs aren't high-tech, aren't white-collar. They're jobs that require people to actually physically show up. You right. know, agriculture is such a massive component to our economy, you know, for people to be in the fields, to people to be working in packing sheds and houses and things of that nature. Working if from they, home, not an option. Precisely. Yeah. And so that was a huge issue, is that you know, they weren't able to continue making uh, their salary, they were laid off or let go, or uh, companies went under. So this was a response to try to make certain that there was some stability in the housing market at the macro level. So I have a question. Uh, <laughs> we're in the in the last month of Fresno City's eviction moratorium, and of course the state already ended. I believe it was September 30th. Yeah. Are there any other municipalities here in the Central Valley that still have? An eviction moratorium? There are a couple. Um, Stockton is one that comes to <clears throat> mind. Um, at Fresno's doesn't necessarily end next month. It yeah, could, I would be surprised to see it end next yeah, month. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't think it's going to. I think you know Mayor Dyer even made clear a couple months ago he doesn't see that happening. Uh, largely because our economy, even though housing prices and rents have gone up, the fundamental our fundamental economy is still fragile at best. And there's still a lot of people who have not been able to go back to work or who are um, underemployed. They're working, but they're not getting the hours that they were. And again, not to continue beating this horse, um, with Omicron now, people are wondering what comes next. Are we going to go back to shutdowns? Are we going to go back to some sort of quarantine or you know, businesses closing or no indoor dining? So there's a lot of uncertainty. I just frankly don't see the city of Fresno saying, yeah, everything's great. We're just going to move forward. So I would suspect moving into the new year, there will still be an eviction moratorium in the incorporated city of Fresno.
And especially because there's still funding <clears throat> in this emergency rental assistance program, and so they see it as a solution. So that can take some of the sting off of mm -hmm. it for the, the right. landlord. It, it doesn't Correct. make it so, you know, onerous, I, I suppose. Yeah. And it, it also gives, frankly, Don, comfort to the tenant as well to know that, you know, there's still going to be money available for them to, to remain housed. I'm I working with a lot of tenant groups. We understand their tenant concerns, their, their clients' concerns, that you know, if they get evicted, where do they go? That's going to be my question for you when we get back from our next commercial break. Where do you go? I had a, um, a squatter, of all people, tell me this week, there's nowhere to move. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back from uh, our commercial break. Thank you. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. And here in the studio today, we have Greg Terzakis, who is the uh, Senior Vice President of the California Apartment Association. We're talking rentals and investment properties. And we also have Kim Huckabee, our Government Affairs Director for the Fresno Association of Realtors. So here we go. Uh, segment number three. I said at the end of segment two that a squatter told me, I can't leave here. There's nowhere to move. I swear, where'd you hear that? Because I, I see rental ads quite often. She goes, well, I heard it on the news. Nowhere to move. So, Greg, give us the, the real story. <laughs> oh, I, I can give you the anecdotal evidence that we have here in the local market. Um, First is that you know, the, the market rate, particularly the high-end stuff, that takes care of itself. If people have the you know $2,500 a month to rent an apartment, they're clearly not affected by COVID. That's not an issue. Where we're seeing problems and, and where you know, the city council acted yesterday in passing a couple of uh, ordinances to move forward with Project Room Key to try to house people is at the low end of the market, You know the affordable space, because one, people aren't being evicted or they're not moving, which is a challenge because there's like a housing ecosystem where you know people start out maybe right out of college or when they move out of the house with a rental apartment and then you know they maybe they move to a nicer rental apartment and then eventually they get a starter home and then they get you know the home for the kids and after 20 years then you know 25 years then they downsize into a condo or something like that. What COVID has done is kind of frozen that whole thing because people who live where they live, even in, in, in owned homes, a lot of them aren't moving. And as you well know, the housing prices for purchases in Fresno have gone completely haywire and, and, and up dramatically in the last two years. So it's harder for people who have been renting and saving to move out and buy a home because one, you've seen a lot of investors come in with cash offers. And two, the prices have gone up so quickly for the people who had 20% of their down payment a year or a half ago, they don't have that anymore. And the prices are so high, they're concerned about being able to make that mortgage payment. So to speak to your uh, person who talked about nowhere to go, for some people it is a real challenge. And that's why the state has Project Room Key. That's why you've seen a, you've seen a lot of uh, motels and hotels that have been converted for people to live in on a on an interim, not long-term in the sense of years and years, but on an interim basis. So it's not the TOT, the transit occupancy 
type of people that are there for less than 28 days. They're there for longer. So the state and the city of Fresno and the county of Fresno have all been working together trying to find a place for all these people who have an issue finding a place to live. But it is harder now than it was a couple of years ago, largely because there is not as much of a turn of inventory in rental housing as there was prior to the pandemic. Yeah, I think it absolutely comes down to, again, being a supply problem. We've got to build those units, especially the, you know, the affordable ones, you know, for that end. I saw a neat little project yesterday over in West Fresno, over by Fink White Playground on uh, near White's Bridge. Uh, um, anyway, it looked like, I didn't count them all up, but it looked like about 16 new units that were, uh, they're almost near nearing completion. And boy, they look nice and, and it, it just fit really well. And so I was happy to see that, mm-hmm. s- some actual building to help alleviate the, the issue. Um, so you're saying there, there's, emergency help for 28 days or less no 20 days it used to be don that any tenancy over 28 days became an actual tenancy with the protection of tenants and i want to be careful here because i'm not an attorney i'm not a lawyer but this is how i understand the law that was a disclaimer like a lawyer though you, yeah yeah well <laughs> again you know you i obviously have some legal background <laughs> yeah but i don't have a law degree yeah. and i have not passed the bar so for example, most people almost invariably rarely, if, if never, stay in a hotel for 28 days on vacation or longer. Once the 28-day deadline is passed, that becomes more of a tenancy. And again, some of those rights that they have, just cause in certain jurisdictions, then apply to them. So what they're trying to do is figure out a way to get these people housed in motels and hotels, um, particularly those that are... Uh, not necessarily as busy. We're not talking, you know, the Hilton in San Francisco, for example. Always pretty busy. But some of the motels and hotels in the Fresno area that have seen, you know, 50% occupancy kind of as a business model, they're trying to fill those units with people who need places to live. Until they can get them in permanent type housing situations. That's exactly right, Kim. And again, to Kim's point, as she mentioned a while ago, um, it is a question of supply. And, you know, particularly, again, in the affordable space, we haven't done a very good job. I remember a couple of years ago, this is when now Supervisor Brandow was a council member. Um, I was at a council meeting, and again, I'm dating how long ago it was because I was actually at the meeting, um, and they were talking about an affordable complex being built in Fresno that would cost $400,000 per unit to be built. And council member at the time, Brandow, kind of said, I don't understand this because for four hundred grand, we can go buy someone a house and give them a car as well so I think part of the problem is is that some of the regulatory burdens have been so high in this state because it's a great source of revenue for state and local governments that there's been a disinclination to build affordable. And at the beginning of the year, it's gotten better now. Um, pricing, for example, lumber mm-hmm. was as, as expensive as it had ever been adjusted for inflation. So you had a lot of builders saying, I, this doesn't pencil out. These projects... I can't make money. I can't break even. I'm going to lose money. And so they can't go to a bank and say, look, I need to borrow money to build an affordable complex that's going to lose money every year. Yeah, there has to be those incentives. And I do think, you know, um, 
locally, I hope, and I hope we see you know more of it that they are trying to find some incentives to maybe you know stop some of that cost. I mean, do you know how much it costs right now? Even before you break ground, right? I mean, it's yes. yearly. What is it like sixty-five to a hundred thousand dollars? I mean, I don't don't know which type of project specifically, but I mean, those costs are just astronomical before you even start to build. Yeah. Right? So if you if let's say. We'll use a round number like $75,000. I like that number. Uh, yeah, That's it's not really a round number, but it'll be what we're working with. But then you add the cost of the land and, and then the question mark cost of supplies. I say question mark because how do you know what it's going to be in six, seven months when you're right. when you're actually right. needing the appliances? Mm -hmm. So, um, so. Yeah, I mean, right there the alone. Sewer connections, water. I mean, you have all the you labor know, costs yeah. have gone up yeah. significantly. Yeah, and even if you eliminated profit from the builder, which wouldn't be fair. I mean, why mm -hmm. why would they do it? And if they can't feed their family, let's say you eliminate it, it's still a pretty high cost project. Yeah, it, it's not e worth e it. Right? Why would you do it? Um. All right. So that that's a major problem for building new ones why would a builder want to build if the money doesn't make sense there mm -hmm. so all right um so the going back to the eviction moratorium you, you don't see that ending in the city of fresno but you don't have it in sanger clovis how, how is that impacting our locality yeah, that's a great question, Don. <laughs> uh, I think what you're seeing is the cities that don't have some of these moratoria, uh, they're less impacted by it. But in the city of Fresno, as I mentioned earlier, people aren't moving. So you're not seeing that sort of, again, that ecosystem, the almost, I, I kind of think of it like as the aquarium, like you have fresh water constantly running in to keep everything from moving. You're not seeing that here. And, and that's why you're seeing issues like you mentioned with your squatter um, about not having a place to go. At the same time, a lot of the, Clovis not so much, but like Sanger, there are not a lot of rental properties there. They're not the, 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 the we have about, the best we could ascertain, and this has been working with the city of Fresno for the last seven years, um, there are probably about eighty-five to 90,000 rental units in Fresno, in the city of Fresno, and CA represents about half of them. Mm -hmm. So in these smaller areas, it's less of an impact because it affects fewer renters. Right, and, and I would just add on to that, you know, coming from Kern County where they didn't have um, an additional uh, ordinance, um, you're, you would be surprised that, like, it's not as big of a... Landlords and tenants work these things out, you know, mostly uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Where, so where it sounds really scary, right, that you wouldn't be able to evict, you know, maybe a tenant that's a bad actor. It's not as big of a problem, I think, as, you know, you would think it is. Mm -hmm. No, and, you know, the one thing I'll say to that, Kim, is that for a tenant who is concerned about losing their home, I mean, to them, it is a crisis. Mm -hmm. We need to kind of take a step back and we can take a look at the statistics in the 30,000 foot level. But, you know, behind every one of these uh, evictions or, or fear of evictions is, you know, a tenant that needs a place to live for themselves and, the, and, and, their, and their family. I think, again, part of the reason why Fresno acted the way that it did was, 
a very small group of bad actors. I mean, it's the same reason why we have laws for almost anything else. I mean, we have speeding laws on Highway 41 and Highway 99 because some people won't drive 55 or 65. They'd do 120 if they could. And so it's that small number of people, um, which I'm happy to say very few of any have been our members. And I think that's probably part of the reason why the city of Fresno is going to continue that moratorium. So the people who may not be as scrupulous uh, can't do things that are, are going to be harmful to their tenants, particularly in the, the dead of winter. Yeah, winter is always a hard time. And I have, I've got a question, but I don't know if we need to take a break first because it might be a long answer. We got a couple of minutes. All right. So if you end up having a tenant that, you know, let's just say – it's a bad actor. They're destroying the property or, right. I mean, like, what is the recourse under the current local, you know, ordinance the, if a landlord needs to do something to protect their property? There are, one can still bring forward an unlawful detainer action, which is an eviction. The legal process is called unlawful detainer under certain exigent circumstances, like you're talking about, like a bad actor, someone, um, for example, running a criminal criminal enterprise if they're if they're you know like a meth lab or something like that to use an extreme example there are certain instances in which evictions can still take place um, but they are pretty limited and the burden of proof is on the landlord mm -hmm. but there are still cases being heard here locally in the court it's just not um, as widespread as it was that it, it can't relate to the Payment. financial inability yeah. to pay if they fall under the protections of um, the different ordinances and laws that have been passed by the state legislature and by the city of Fresno. So is it fair to say that prior to COVID, the majority of evictions uh, and unlawful detainers was about money, unpaid rent? Now that that can't be the case. Yeah. It, it, I, you know, honestly, Don, I don't have the statistics as to the percentages prior to COVID, but, I mean, I do know that an eviction is, is a failure. I mean, on one part or another, either the tenant, the landlord, or both. I mean, it's a relationship that's gone south. It's something that didn't work. In violation of a contract, ultimately. Precisely. So I, I think for a lot of our, our, our members, again, that's all I can speak to is, is the, memberships, the membership and the members that we represent. Um, there were some people who were evicted for failure to pay, but I think a lot of it was again, going back to what we were talking about, you know, bad actors that needed to be removed for, for health and safety reasons, particularly in high-density communities. If you have one bad actor, it could affect an entire entire uh, apartment complex. Mm -hmm. All right. With that, we are going to our next commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and Kim Huckabee is here helping out today, along with Greg Terzakis of the California Apartment Association. You like that music, huh? Yeah, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire brings me back to my uh, middle school days and high school days. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, it's a song that just stuck with us. I, the first time we, we played it, we had an insurance agent here, and I was trying to think of a song that would fit his industry. 
all I could come up with was the name of the band, Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> and that song has stuck with us for years now. <laughs> um, what do we do to, what's the solution to our housing woes? Again, a great question. Um, you know, I mean, essentially what it boils down to, Don, is everyone wants to go to heaven. No one wants to die. No one wants to make the hard policy decisions that need to be made because, frankly, and I don't want to indict the political establishment, but particularly, you know, in California and locally, you've got term limits. So, you know, people are going to be there for 12 or eight years. And, you know, the immediate issues of, you know, how do we deal with the things we could fix right away are a lot more appealing rather than, okay, what's something we could do in a generational shift that is going to make the state better in 20 years? And I would point out to the fact that Pat Brown, Jerry Brown, our former governor's father, had a, I believe, four-phase project when he was governor in the 60s for water storage. Mm-hmm that would have created water storage for the 40 plus million people that we have in California now. We never followed through on that. And we and still as, don't have storage. <laughs> right, as a result now, we're, you know, unfortunately we've been in a drought for the last several years. We've paid for that because we didn't plan, we didn't frankly dig our well when we were thirsty. And I think that's the issue that we're seeing here in housing is that it's such a massive undertaking and it's so complex and it takes so long to come to fruition that it's been kicked down the road for so many years. And I think we've reached a point now where, I mean, there's a profound crisis in California in housing. And it used to just be largely the Bay Area. We, people would talk about how expensive San Francisco and the Silicon Valley was, particularly you know, in the last 10 years, post-dot-com boom. But when we got to more of a stable economy, you know, Apple and Facebook and Twitter and these companies that were coming in. And, you know, I went to college in San Francisco. So neighborhoods that were nice and working class 30 years ago now have been, what you know, moved up into high class housing and very expensive housing. So people have been priced out. What we need to do is work collaboratively, private industry, government and quasi-governmental organizations to come up with a plan at the federal, state, and local level that is going to create a template for the next 25 years as to how we build what we build. Mm -hmm. And we need to triage the process, Don. We need to say, okay, again, I said earlier, generally speaking, market rate housing will take care of itself. Okay, then where do we begin? What well, we begin in the affordable space, we begin in the tax credit space, we begin in the, the housing that accepts housing choice vouchers, formerly known as Section 8. How do we get builders to want to build to create supply for the overwhelming demand that exists? And there are tough choices that need to be made. And I think the degree to which we, you know, again, speaking to your audience directly that are involved in the real estate industry, kind of put our elected officials' feet to the flames and say, okay, you know, we understand that there are a lot of immediate you know, public safety and things of that nature. They need to be dealt with every year. Budget cycles happen every year. But what are we doing now to plan for what our state is going to look like in 20 years so we don't wind up having the issue that we had with water storage? Where in 20 years from now, we realize we're no farther down the road of building more housing than we were in 2021. 
the population has grown, and the disparities have gotten larger. And I think, too, it's really important to realize, you know, Greg says that there are tough choices to be made, and they are tough. They are difficult. Not everyone is always going to be happy um, as we, you know, work together, you know, federal, state, local levels to get things done. But we also can't just keep coming up with alternative, um, you know, solutions and kicking the can down the road, like Greg says. You know, um, yes, there are, you know, programs and different, you know, legislation that's being created all of the time. And we're going to continue to have these housing conversations, particularly at the local level. You know, um, things like rent control or rent stabilization that, you know, none of those things are ultimately going to solve the problem at hand. We have to sit down and folks have to show up. You know, we have we have to hold feet to the fire, but you have to participate or we're not going to get it done. I think one of my favorite quotes um, and I've used it before is Asser Lindbeck is a Ph.D. in economics from Sweden. Um, he's a socialist and he was formerly the chair of the committee that awards the Memorial Prize in Economics from the the Nobel Prize in Economics, essentially, even though it's not one of the original five. And Asser Limbeck said that aside from bombing, the most effective way to destroy a city is rent control. And you know, we believe that not because it serves our interests, because it happens to be true. And if builders see that either the state, if you looked at like Proposition uh, 10 and Proposition mm-hmm. 21, um, wanted to have statewide rent control, those builders are going to go to Texas, they're going to go to Arizona, they're going to go to Florida, they're going to go to places where they don't have to worry about their regulatory burdens. We'd like to see that go away or be diminished. But at the same time, we need to have accountability. Uh, Senator Scott Weiner out of San Francisco for several years has been trying to pass laws that would allow ministerial upzoning. And mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know, that means essentially instead of having to go through a, a, a CUP process, um, go to planning commission, go to city council, have this thing delayed a year. Uh, it would be able to be done basically by right and over the counter at the planning department of, of a city. It, precisely. Amazing. These are the kind of, uh, of common sense reforms we could use to get this housing built that we need. And all it takes is the will of the legislature to pass it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking to a developer this week and uh, I said, you know, you were a visionary because I remember that project you're, you're working on. Um, it's exactly what we need now. It's affordable work workforce Work, housing. Yes. And then it hit me. Wow, that was a long time ago that you started and you still don't have approval on it. Mm-hmm. So here we are six, seven years later. He's still working on that project. Now, going back to rent control, killing a city. Um, we had a show a couple of years ago with a property manager from Santa Monica. It's oh, yeah. Ha- that's had rent control since 1978. Mm -hmm. So we did a comparison because that first rental home I bought, um, uh, it was a four bedroom, two bath home by Cedar and Herndon for $375 a month. Wow. She said she rented her first place at $375 a month in Santa Monica, but with two, I think it's 2.5% rental increase every year. They are now up to f- over $4,000, and there's no way in the world I can get that kind of rent for that first rental home. I mean, you know, $1,300 maybe, $1,400 maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this has been in a free market, well, until AB 1482 came out. But in other words, 
the rent controlled city was far more expensive than the non rent controlled. Uh, I'm just going to jump in. I think it's one of those things where, you know, things can have the best intentions, but there are just so many unintended consequences. And that's why I think we have to, we really need to focus on what we need to focus on, even though it's going to be tough, instead of doing these things that we have no idea what those unintended consequences are and end up hurting the tenants in the long run. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the end of the day. Kim, I agree. And I think it's also important to note that Again, speaking for CEA, we don't think rent control is the answer, but we also don't ignore that there's a problem. That's why if you take a look at the the legislation that we have sponsored over the last decade and the legislation we have supported, uh, it's all supply bills. It's all trying to find a way to get more housing built as quickly as possible. And, you know, again, I think a lot of it is just a question of will. It's a question of the legislature saying, yes, some of these decisions may be unpopular. There may be some issues with you know the NIMBYs not wanting multifamily in their neighborhood, but the crisis is so profound that something needs to be done. Something uh, we have to build our way out of it. Yeah, you know we really do. And I, I would like to think that again, coming uh, into the new legislative session, um, the assembly and the Senate will work together in finding ways to fast track property. Uh, being developed, again, for our industry, particularly multifamily, and that at the local level, there'll be more by-right ministerial uh, projects able to be built that will cut through so much red tape. And to your point, to the the developer you were mentioning earlier, it won't take six or seven years to get these doors online. Because for, uh, for people who are looking for a place right now, six years isn't gonna do it. Six months isn't gonna do it. They need something now. That's right. By the way, I've come up with a couple of solutions for rent control. There are alternatives to rent control. And one of them is the opportunity that's out there right now of a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at 2.5% on an FHA loan. Um, You can fix your, there's rent control. Mm -hmm. You're fixing your payment for the next 30 years. Of course, then it adjusts down to zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one way to go. The other great way of rent control is good communications between the tenant and the landlord. If you're a tenant, communicate so well, keep that property so well, that landlord wants to keep you, wants to keep your rents low so that you don't move. And that's the way it's been done for years and years and like to see that continue. I want to thank both of you for uh, helping out today, and but I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in every Saturday. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Don. All right. We'll see you all back next week.